And a very warm welcome to A Reason for Hope. What is A Reason for Hope? A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast, an hour-long live broadcast, where we receive your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right, your questions guide this hour with you, your questions and the answers we endeavor to find in God's Word, the Bible. So as you join us on the various platforms, send us your questions in, in the chat functions. We will be monitoring those as they come on in and delving into the Word with you. So we're very glad that you're joining us today. My name is Dave Robson. I will be your host and fielding those questions. And with us, as is often the case, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today, sir? Good. I finally discovered how those medieval knights were able to see through those real thin visors in high-risk combat situations. Oh, yeah? How was that? They used night vision. <laughs> oh. Wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> we're off and rolling. So this is why we dedicate the show to... Uh, delving into the word because you see what happens when we use our own brains and thoughts <laughs> like you show i kind of like that one yeah that, 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 that's a pretty that good, was a good one yeah I, that was, but then i'm a dad and it's sort of a dad that's joke right. Dad. So, yeah. <laughs> that's right that works yeah also with us uh, pastor scott richards who's a senior pastor here at calvary christian fellowship how are you doing today? oh delighted to be here a lot of fun stuff going on these yeah. days so yes both, there is both uh, locally and internationally and every other way well We'll bring you up to speed here in just a moment. Yeah, yeah, you're going to give us a little update on all those things. Well, there's various ways you can join us. If you're listening to us on the radio, you are listening to our previous show, pre-recorded. But do send us your questions at questionsforhope. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. And we will endeavor to get to your question on our next live broadcast. And consider when you're not on your drive time, joining us on one of those live platforms where we are, like I say, live, live, live. You can send us your questions and follow along that way. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, follow the Watch Live tab, and you will find us there. There's a chat box right there where you can send in your questions. Also on Facebook at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll find uh, a gang of us there as well. We have an app you can download on your mobile device or even on Roku and Apple TV. So look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. On YouTube, the channel is called A Reason for Hope. So you will find us there. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, for some uh, snarky snippets, as he likes to call it, (laughs) and uh, highlights from the show and uh, comments and commentary on world events and all that kind of thing. So yeah, like to... Follow him along there. You it, certainly can. Yeah, it's it's exciting to do it, and you just never know what kind of responses you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. it's, quite a, it's quite an environment, that's for sure. So there's all the multiple ways you can join us. And uh, if you have a trouble on one platform, jump onto another one. Our website, we always recommend going there. But please do send us your questions on the chat functions because we will be literally following along with those live. Get your questions in early. There's no dumb question as long as it's an honest question and as long as you know we are going to be finding the answers in the Bible. That's what we're all about, about giving you a reason for hope. That's what it's all about. And couldn't we use a little of that these days? We sure can, and we sure could. Uh, Pastor Scott, would you like to pray for us as we delve on in? Yeah, I'd consider it a privilege. Let's do it. Father, I thank you that we can come before you and dedicate this program to you. We pray that uh, the words that we share and and the the scriptures that come to mind uh, would be the ones that you would want 
to minister in a very deep way, in a heart-to-heart level with your people out there. Lord, I pray that you'd be bringing people all over the world uh, into this uh, fellowship we have centered around your word. And we pray, Father, that uh, you would use your word as, as you intend it to, to go out and edify people, build them up in their knowledge of you, exhort them, uh, give them the uh, tools to be able to apply your word in a more uh, direct and personal way, and comfort them, Lord, knowing that uh, any good and lasting work in our lives comes not by might or by power, but by your spirit. We commit this time to you. We pray that uh, everyone involved would just enjoy your presence, Lord, and delight in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you mentioned, it's elections week. The <laughs> aftermath. Week indeed, the yeah. aftermath. Yeah. Election, the aftermath. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like that. <laughs> like, uh, Needed a graphic for yeah, that or something exactly. like that. But uh, any comments or updates that you'd like to share with us? Well, uh, for those of us who are in Arizona, and I guess it does have implications for the rest of the country, there are uh, still a large number of ballots that are uh, outstanding uh, that have yet to be counted. Uh, but uh, the, the fascinating thing is it does appear that uh, the slate of candidates that uh, are pro-life uh, have uh, made an incredible rally from being very significantly down um, at a particular point. I guess the reason they're saying that they were these uh, candidates were down was because uh, early voting uh, tends to be uh, done by those who are less conservative in their orientation. And uh, those are more conservative uh, as we would probably imagine, like the tradition of actually going to uh, the uh, voting booth and uh, filling out their ballot there on site. Um, I actually uh, managed to do both. They sent me an early ballot. I filled it out, uh, brought it to the uh, voting site and turned it in. (laughs) So I had the best of both worlds. It does appear, though, that a number of candidates here in the state that are pro-life are making a tremendous rally at this point. Uh, apparently right before uh, airtime, uh, Abe Hamadeh, uh, who is a uh, uh, first-generation immigrant uh, from Iran, his family came from there, uh, is, looks like he is going to be the Arizona Attorney General, which is uh, good news for those of us who are pro-life. Uh, the uh, other uh, slots that are still up for grabs, uh, including uh, the uh, Senate race uh, between Blake Masters and Mark Kelly, uh, still too close to call, uh, and uh, the uh, votes that are coming in uh, seem to indicate that things are swaying in the direction of uh, the pro-life candidates, so I would just encourage those of you out there, as we say, we don't uh, tend to side uh, with one political uh, side or the other, but we are issues voters uh, because uh, the Bible makes it very, very clear that life begins at conception. It also makes it very, very clear that children, even preborn children, are very important to God. And so uh, we want to support anyone uh, that would take that stand. So pray that the Lord's uh, will gets done. Uh, it does appear nationally uh, that uh, the Republican Party has uh, won control of the House of Representatives. Uh, the fate of the Senate uh, may actually come down to what happens here in Arizona and another election still going on in Nevada, as well as a runoff election that's going to go on in Georgia in uh, December. Uh, So we're not really going to know how the Senate turns out. But even having said that, it does appear that this is another uh, uh, victory for uh, pro-life interests in that uh, the president, uh, uh, Joe Biden, was uh, talking uh, pretty forcefully and pretty directly about uh, passing a uh, law that would uh, reinstate uh, the previous uh, abortion policy that was uh, true under Roe v. Wade. 
Uh, it does appear if uh, the Republicans control the House that that is DOA, that that kind of a bill would never uh, make it out of the House no matter what happens with the Senate. So uh, good news in that front uh, as well. Another interesting uh, thing that is going on uh, overseas at this particular point, and it's kind of getting lost in uh, a lot of the uh, hoopla over our elections, is uh, there is a uh, conference that is being put on by the United Nations at Sharm el-Sheikh, which is a resort uh, city on uh, the Red Sea in Egypt. Uh, this is supposed to be gathering together representatives from all countries around the world to discuss climate change and the kind of changes that uh, countries need to make in light of uh, what is called the threat to our creation. Now, the most interesting thing uh, about it is uh, along with uh, the usual suspects coming up and uh, making speeches and, and proposals and such, uh, at uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, there is not only this uh, conference taking place, but uh, there is also going to be a international interfaith gathering at, get this, Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula. Now, a couple things we could say about that. Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula, I think, is kind of a non-starter as far as being the actual Mount Sinai. The only reason it has been designated Mount Sinai is because um, Catherine, uh, the uh, mother of, uh, of uh, 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 Constantine, uh, went on a pilgrimage there. They showed her a uh, mountain that was out in the middle of Sinai, and the, she said, well, it looks like the real deal. So there you go. From that time, time onward, roughly around the 300s or so, people looked at this mountain in the Sinai Peninsula and said, this is Mount Sinai, hence why they call it the Sinai Peninsula. There's better evidence to suggest the actual Mount Sinai is uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, there is a long tradition among the locals there about a place called Jabal al-Laws uh, by the Muslims, and they will swear up and down that this was the actual Mount Sinai. Now, there was a book that was written called The Gold of Exodus uh, that talks about a couple of adventurers actually making it to this site. Uh, we really don't know where the actual Mount Sinai is, but having said that, uh, it's very interesting that at this UN conference, uh, there is going to be an international interfaith gathering at Mount Sinai uh, with the idea of uniting all religions and all faiths under the banner of uh, protecting the planet uh, in uh, the UN uh, information, uh, the UN website information uh, site on this particular gathering. Uh, they said to support, challenge, and inspire discussions. Uh, at the Sharm el-Sheikh conference. Interfaith climate events will take place in Sharm el-Sheikh, London, Jerusalem, and elsewhere that will be heart-stirring, transformative, and a moment of inspiration for religious communities and for humanity. Religious leaders will call for a re-examination of deep-seated attitudes and for identifying ways to transform these attitudes for the well-being of Earth, our common home. Mount Sinai is a mountain whose memory and meaning loom large as a place of revelation in the collective consciousnesses of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and others. As an ancient sacred space, it was the site of prophetic experience in receiving God's message for the prophet Moses and Elijah in all three Abrahamic traditions and the prophet Muhammad in the Muslim tradition. Uh, this conference taking place at Sinai can remind humanity of our sacred responsibility to care for God's creation. We come to Sinai in a moment of repentance and quest we seek a new vision for humanity and its endangered existence, and we seek to receive and amplify a message of life-sustaining living and habits that humanity needs to hear today. 
In this spirit, the project partners will bring together premier religious leaders from the world's major religions to put forth a prophetic interreligious call to action called the 10 Universal Principles for Climate Justice. Now, uh, prophetically speaking, uh, we kind of wonder what in the world is going to be the banner that is going to unite all world religions under uh, one roof, under, under one umbrella. Uh, it does appear that uh, at least an effort is being made under the guise of climate change to say, well, let's uh, leave behind all of these different differences we have uh, about God and who he is and what it means to know him. Uh, let's all get together and come up with our 10 universal principles for climate justice, uh, a not-so-veiled uh, idea of replacing the Ten Commandments with such things. Uh, I think it's very, very interesting we see this. I don't think that this is, for instance, uh, a plank of the Antichrist's one-world government, but it does indicate that a one-world governmental uh, entity is certainly interested in using religion and uh, a religious site like Sinai and even uh, the aegis of using uh, Ten Commandments uh, to uh, unify people uh, according to the idea of the worship of Mother Earth, uh, the idea of ecological uh, pr protection. And uh, don't get me wrong, uh, a Bible-believing Christian has genuine reasons to want to protect the environment. We believe it was created by God for His glory, and as a result of creating that for His glory, we should be the first ones that want to protect and defend it in reasonable and rational ways that don't end up doing damage uh, to people in the interim. That should be our biblical uh, mandate. In fact, we as believers in Christ, uh, as much or more than anyone, uh, would have uh, the wherewithal to be able to say, this is why we want to protect the earth, because we see God's creation in it. But having said that, uh, people going beyond all of this and saying, well, let's uh, put aside uh, truth claims and just all unite under the banner of ecology. I don't think this is a directly prophetic development, but it's certainly uh, like a lot of things that we see about a one-world government, a lot of things we see about a one-world economic system, certainly indicates that this, the uh, skids are being greased, moving in that direction, moving in the idea of a one-world religious unified system mm. that uh, the Bible speaks of in uh, Revelation 17 as being mystery Babylon, uh, all nations coming back to that Babylonian uh, style religion, if you will, uh, that uh, dominated at the Tower of Babel and uh, has kind of woven its way uh, through religious sensibilities ever since. So fascinating stuff. Yeah. But a question from Robert while we're on kind of, you know, this kind of subject and world events. Um, hi, Robert. Thank you for your question and being part of the show. Hello, brothers in Christ. So my question is a follow-up question. Just wanted to know your thoughts on this individual in Israel named, and you have to correct and excuse me. A rabbi who claims to be, or is claimed to be or is gathering a following comparable to a messiah yeah they've held him as messiah and of course he's not the messiah um, but it's amazing how they flock to this man is there a prophetic significance do you see in this thank you and god bless you know uh, i've done a little looking into this uh this fellow um he's not really seen as a messianic figure mm. uh he is seen as a, a child prodigy uh, i guess at the age of about six he was able to recite the entire torah uh, from memory, which is a really wonderful accomplishment. As, as a result of that, uh, he is uh, looked upon with great respect. Uh, sometimes those who don't really understand rabbinic culture and how greetings are exchanged have seen rabbis uh, talk to him. He's now in his 20s, 
and uh, they will uh, they will bow in a sense towards him or kiss his hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are very traditional greetings, rabbi to rabbi, uh, to one another. It doesn't mean that he's being worshipped or being lifted up as some messianic figure. Having said that, you need to understand that in uh, some of the more uh, orthodox uh, communities in Judaism, they do anticipate a Messiah, but they they style the Messiah by their sensibilities different than the way we would use the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, they It simply means the idea of a specially anointed one, uh, perhaps by their lights and their sensibility, one who will manage to unite all of Judaism together to rebuild the temple, uh, which they obviously pray for at every Passover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But as far as uh, a messianic designation with a capital M, uh, he's certainly not seen in that light, at least not now. Who knows where he could be five years from now, but uh, certainly an individual that is respected, particularly in Orthodox Jewish circles, uh, for his tremendous grasp of uh, of the Torah mm-hmm. and uh, is seen as a, a very important teacher in Israel, but uh, certainly not messianic. Uh, I was asked by a couple different people about uh, this fellow, so I did oh, some looking into it, and, and that's really kind of where it sits right now. Yeah, when it comes to groups or individuals you ought to be concerned about in the non- messianic Jewish community, it wouldn't be individuals who know their Torah. It would be those who deliberately misrepresent it specifically in hostility to Christianity. If you want to and care to look him up, I'll mention his name because it is that serious. Tobia Singer is a much more serious uh, anti-Christian Jewish authority and voice than the individual who we won't try to pronounce. And again, his uh, efforts in undermining the gospel have even gone to the detriment of his own nation in supporting Islamic causes insofar as they demean or dismiss the nature of the Messiah as being in line with Jesus Christ, or Jesus of Nazareth, rather, to be respectful. The point being made, though, is this. When it comes to someone claiming a support or a following, we don't want to get caught up in what's called newspaper eschatology, meaning that we read into, in broad strokes, modern-day events, and then narrowly interpret them as a fulfillment of prophecy when we're not being consistent with the data. The point being made is if I'm going to make a narrow conclusion, it should also be with narrow data. If I'm going to make a broad conclusion, that can be supported with broad data. Is it true that false Christs and false messiahs will rise up even among God's chosen people in the last days? Absolutely. We're going to talk about that in our uh, Bible study in Matthew 24 tonight. Yeah, we'll see. But on the other hand, I'm going to get narrow in the application. That's being sloppy. We want to avoid that. Yeah, we don't. uh, It seems like uh, you can almost set your watch by it. Uh, People will either play Antichrist, Antichrist, is this guy the Antichrist? Uh, some will use a little riff and a variation on that called false prophet, false prophet, who is the false prophet of Revelation 13. Don't believe this guy is going to be it, but who knows? Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And if you are in the, the Tucson area, Calvary Christian Fellowship uh, tonight at 6.30 p.m., we have our regular service and these two fine gentlemen right here, we're, we're doing a, a several week study on the end times, everything you need to know about the end times. So if that's something that you'd like to delve more into, yeah, you're welcome yeah, to we come finished uh, the book of Revelation, uh, mm-hmm. going through it verse by verse. But we discovered there were people that still had a lot of questions about particular uh, 
uh, issues, mm. uh, particular subjects pertaining to biblical prophecy. So we're going to take the next few weeks and uh, go through what we consider some of the more um, foundational scriptures that a uh, believer needs to have under their belt that will answer most of the questions uh, that, that people tend to have. Yeah, very good. Yeah. yeah, And you can also join us online, the same platforms you're joining us on. Um, half an hour after we finish will be our service. So obviously you're more than welcome to, to join us. We have a question from Yolanda. Uh, why did God use, would it be Yehu? Jehu. Jehu. Yehu would have been the Hebrew pronunciation. Yeah. yeah. That well, that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I speak the Hebrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jehu and, and Basha, for his glory, they were idol worshippers as well. Thank you. Um, um, Basha wasn't used by God. He was punished by God, but. Yeah, Basha that, did not have a good experience but, with the true and living God. Jehu, on the other hand, yeah, interesting guy. Yeah, he uh, he was used by God in some powerful ways. But I think the best way to put that into perspective, um, Yolanda, is to remember God's allowed to use what he wants. The conclu- It's not the end justifies the means by any sense of the term, but it is keeping in focus what they were risen up to, raised up rather, to accomplish. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was used by God to judge his people, but also note he was judged by God as an idolater. We can read that in Daniel chapter 4. King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, Darius the Mede, take your pick. These were people who, and I quote from Isaiah 45, did not know the Lord, but were used by God to fulfill his purposes. Jehu would be another example of this in that judgment was overdue in Israel. And what do I mean by that? Well, you wisely referenced the end of First Kings chapter 15, where it notes that Basha did evil in the sight of the Lord the way that Jeroboam had. That was the promotion of the golden calf worship right. that was started by Aaron, ironically. But in the next chapter, in First Kings chapter 16, this is a very morbid endorsement. It says in reference to King Ahab in verse 29, that when he reigned, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now that's going away. Yeah, that's a long. He's list. number one, <laughs> and not just because of his bad attitude, but also because of his poor marital decisions. You remember Queen Jezebel? That's the reference to the, uh, I guess, uh, administration of Ahab, if you will. Yeah. But what's interesting about Jehu is that's essentially what God sent him to deal with. Uh, Jezebel died at the hands of her own caretakers and bodyguards when Jehu called for her to be cast out if you were on the side of the Lord. Right. Now, when Jehu did these things, he was then given a reminder, and you cited the passage in Second Kings, but he was told, you have the opportunity now. You've done this great act of basically cleaning out the dirty laundry yeah. for Israel, and if you obey me, you're going to be blessed. But remember, the old covenant's still in place. If you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. And Jehu, true to form and a fallen sinful human being, (laughs) chose, after doing good things, you know, deposing under the approval of God, corrupt leadership, what then happened? He made compromises. He started worshiping idols. And as a result, the generations after him were cursed as God warned him. Now note, just like with Basha, he was judged by God because he not only knew what he was doing was wrong, but knew better than to violate those principles because the penalty for kings violating those laws were steep. He experienced them. Ahab likewise. Jehu was given an opportunity to do the right thing after doing right things. But note, God is a just God, and in the covenant that he was dealing with Israel, there weren't take-backs to capital crimes. He started promoting idolatry in Israel and achieved the same 
consequences that, ironically enough, he was the instrument of delivering in previous administrations. So the fact that God used him is an endorsement to everything he did or would do, just like with David. But if, on the other hand, we're going to ask the question, what was the point of Ahab being risen up? It wasn't to say, this is my guy. It's saying, Ahab, you're fired. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Great answer. Yeah. Great. Yolanda, thank you. Thank you for that question. Great question. A question from Carl. How do you know if your prayer has been answered? Well, uh, I think there's a a number of different ways to do that. First of all, uh, one of the most important ways to understand if your prayer has been answered is to pray specifically. Uh, You know, praying something that's nebulous like, Lord, I I pray that you'd bless me somehow in the great beyond today. Well, you know, (laughs) nebulous prayers tend to get nebulous answers. And people might say, well, how do you know that didn't just just happen, uh, if you will? Uh, you know, the Bible, uh, in uh, one of the, the most important passages we see on prayer, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 or 7, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The word request there, it's a Greek word, desis, carries the idea of a specific, measurable, uh, verifiable kind of a request that you would make toward God. If you're in a, a difficult situation, uh, you're, you're uh, say, facing, uh, staring down the barrel, maybe a diagnosis, a financial problem, a relational problem, and you pray specifically with thanksgiving, we are told, uh, that the peace of God will, that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's good to pray specifically. However, one of the dangers we get into when we pray specifically is sometimes we can pray presumptuously, and, and this is what I mean by that. We can, in a sense, fall into the trap of telling God his business. Um, I don't mind coming before the Lord and uh, saying the, uh, the dealings in the church and so on, uh, just uh, really being very specific about certain things that are going on or what's happening in certain people's lives, their needs. Uh, no problem doing that whatsoever. But when I pray, I always pray like Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, by praying specifically, I can know that the Lord, first of all, has heard my prayer, but by praying, not nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, uh, I, I lock into one of the great promises of God about prayer we find in 1 John chapter 5 and uh, verse 14. There we read, uh, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have uh, what we've requested of him in whatever we ask. So uh, praying according to God's will, how can I know God's will? Well, you know, bring your request before the Lord. When we're, we're told in the book of Hebrews, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The word boldly, there are two Greek words fused together, the word uh, to say and the word anything. Uh, we can say anything to God. Uh, we, we can voice our concerns to him, and I think the more specific we are, the better off we are. However, it's always good to defer to God's higher and better perspective for our lives. Um, I think of uh, Ruth Graham's famous quote, that if God had answered her prayers just the way she had prayed them, she would have married the wrong man six times. Mm. So uh, praying for what your desires are, but uh, nevertheless not uh, my will, but thine be done, having that balance there. Pray specifically, and uh, when God answers specifically, be sure to specifically give thanks for those answers to prayer. But uh, when we pray, let's always remember that uh, we aren't praying to change God's mind and heart. Mm. Prayer oftentimes, it, it, 
works the opposite way. It changes right. my heart and my mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Anything you'd add to that? No. Okay. No. Oh, great. Um, Yolanda had a, a a comment that there's um, some channels on YouTube saying that most churches are going to hell because they celebrate pagan holidays. Um, you know, it's we're coming into the holidays now. What is you know a, a good Christian response to the holiday? season and there's all the decorations uh, and the, this, that, and the you, other. You know, I think this is such an important and relevant question because you know what happened at my house today? My wife put up our Christmas tree. Oh my goodness. It's not even Thanksgiving. I you know, set that, up your Asherah pole? That, that's, uh, I was like, wow, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Got to jump on that. You know, it, it, it looks nice. It looks, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, you know, when I was asked about it earlier, I said, boy, these days we need every reason to be jolly, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, I live opposite uh, Peter Martin, who's often a guest on the show. I literally live opposite him on the same street, and they've put up their trees and lights and and all that. They were out there doing that the other day. And I mean, can you blame him? Emma's about ready to pop. She needs to stay busy. Exactly, yeah. 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 So that's a good, that's a good reason. But Yeah, so. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think what it comes down to is it's one of those Romans 14 situations. Uh, where we are told one man observes one day above another, another man regards every day alike, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Now that tells us a couple of things from the scripture. First of all, it tells us that as far as celebrating or venerating one day or another, whether it's the Sabbath, uh, whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Easter, uh, some whether people, it's President's Day, some people will, you know, tend to elevate one day above another. And Paul's advice to them is be fully convinced in your own mind. In other words, don't do it just to do it. Don't do it just because you're following the herd. Sit down and say, okay, this is why I want to celebrate this particular day, set this day aside for the glory of God. I want to do it as under the Lord. And if you do that as under the Lord, you can't go wrong. You know, people ask, uh, you know, is it wrong to keep the Sabbath? Well, it's wrong to keep the Sabbath if you tend to use it like, a club over the head of anybody else who doesn't keep the Sabbath. We're free from all of that. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul in Colossians says, don't let anyone judge you in regard to new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substances of Christ. Uh, you know, the, the Sabbath is a foreshadowing of the rest that Jesus promised to give us. Uh, Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Mm -hmm. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. He's speaking to people who are under just a crushing uh, burden of religious obligation. Uh, And uh, the people of his day had no problem adding to these sort of things. If you want to be accepted by God, if you want to have a hope of an afterlife, you better be keeping this commandment. You better be following this rabbi's teaching, and you better not do this. You better, you know, did you, when you spit on the Sabbath, did you spit on the sidewalk, or did you spit on the ground and make clay? Well, you violated that. You need to, they were into all this minutia, and it was just crushing for people. Uh, You know, and, and so when people will talk about celebrating the Sabbath, uh, if, for instance, your attitude is, you know, I think it'd just be an awesome thing to set aside a day where I turn off the internet, turn off the TV, uh, don't have any kind of electronic stimulation whatsoever, and, and just focus in on, on worshiping the Lord. I'm just going to stay at home with my family. We're going to focus in on God. And the thing. You want to do that? Knock yourself out. Peter Martin, uh, again, our frequent uh, panelist here on A Reason for Hope, does that on a regular basis. And that's great because he understands something. You're not more right with God if you do it, and you're not less right with God if you don't. It had nothing to do whatsoever with your righteousness before the Lord. And that's where I think 
we have to uh, be very, very careful because sometimes we will elevate a particular day. And if we celebrate a day uh, and uh, we think everybody should, we can sit in judgment of others. I, I remember uh, when I was in uh, grade school, there was uh, this one family, they were Jehovah's Witnesses. We never even heard of Jehovah's Witnesses. But the poor kids, whenever we saluted the flag, as we did at the beginning of every class session, they'd have to get up and leave the room. We'd all just kind of look at them like, man, that's weird. Why aren't, why aren't you saluting the flag? And they didn't really know because they hadn't been clued in yet. Uh, they couldn't take part in any of the Christmas celebrations or Easter celebrations or anything like that because their group says, you do that, you've become a pagan and you're you know, not going to hell. You're just going to get annihilated. annihilated. Yeah. So. Um, Whoa. yeah, so, uh, you know, there, there are, are people that live under these kind of, of burdens mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, my two cents worth is this, and it always comes up. If you're opposed to giving thanks to God, if you think that's a problem, then don't celebrate Thanksgiving. If you don't particularly think that taking one day out of the year to specifically commemorate the fact that, uh, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel, God with us, uh, that Jesus was born into this world. Uh, you, you feel like that's wrong for some reason? Well, then don't celebrate it. But don't hold in judgment those of us who say, well, you know, we don't know if Jesus was born on December 25th. And inevitably, during this time of year, we're going to get asked this question, when was Jesus yeah. born? That, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, the long answer is we don't know. Uh, we're not told. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different theories about it. Uh, but, you know, even if we don't know the day, the fact that we're getting together to, my goodness, celebrate the fact that Jesus was willing to become one of us. Uh, he was willing, although he was eternally God from eternity past, he was willing to take on human nature to reach people like us. And he was born in a cattle stall. His crib was a manger. A manger was a limestone feeding trough for all things. Some say Jesus was born in a manger. That would have been very difficult to pull off. Mm -hmm. Manger is the feeding trough. The stable is where he was born. But, you know, I think about that, and I think that's something to celebrate. I don't have a problem doing that. The other thing is this. We call them C&Es. You heard that expression? Christmas and Easter oh, church yeah. attenders, uh, C&Es. Yeah. Um, you know, some people say, oh, C&E's, you know, that C&E is sitting in my spot that I always sit in church. And they get, man, bring them on. I love C&E's, you know? I mean, if you're going to be at church twice a year, at least come to church and hear God's word. And who knows what God will do with that? Better than going to church zero times right. in a year, right? Yep. So uh, there's some people who only go to church on those days. Why not use it as a chance to proclaim the gospel? Mm -hmm. You know, how can you argue with that? But the moment you, you get on a high horse and say, oh, well, if you celebrate this, um, you're going to hell. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, show me uh, in any of the descriptions of the plan of salvation that God has given to us, where it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in his, your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you don't celebrate certain holidays, regardless of your individual motivation in doing so. Yeah, you will be saved. I, I don't see it. You know, have your conviction, but hold it gracefully. And, and you know, don't look down your nose at other people that might hold those convictions. Maybe it's something maybe that, that, you know, they've been hurt. Maybe it's something, uh, you know, where they've got a tender conscience. If someone doesn't want to come to church, who goes to our church on uh, Christmas, okay, that's fine with me. Uh, you know, if 
for whatever reason, hopefully we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't make you more right if you do. It doesn't make you less right if you don't. We gather together to build each other up in Christ, to share his love, to worship him, to hear his word. You know, we can do that emphasizing the birth of Christ or his uh, resurrection mm -hmm. uh, a couple days out of the year. I don't think that's a problem. Plus, the claims that are made by these discernment ministries are verifiably false. If you want further information, Yolanda, or anyone else listening on the uh, quote-unquote pagan origins of Christmas and Easter, they're based largely around a lot of sloganeering and memes rather than actual information. Uh, if you want to look up the, I guess, progenitor of this kind of conspiracy nonsense, look up Alexander Hislop in the Two Babylons. He's the source for most of these things and didn't know what he was talking about. When we come to actual terms, examples, and evidences of their reasons why they would say that Christmas is a pagan holiday, it gets so bizarre and convoluted. They would say, oh, well, when you have to kneel down to get a tree or a present underneath the Christmas tree, you're bowing down to the tree. See, that's worshiping creation. Good heavens. This is not obviously something we should be not only dividing fellowship over, but even talking about if we have a love for the truth. The reality is, and this is just a summation of a summation, the practice of uh, Christmas, let's just start there since that's closer to where we are, was based around essentially the not only actions and historical example of a Turkish saint by the name of Nicholas of Myra, but also popularized, not because of these Norse pagan traditions, believe me, I've read plenty of them, but the traditions that were handed through Roman Catholic remembrances of this saint, which you can have your own opinions about, coupled with a traditional attire of Dutch immigrants to the United States and a Coca-Cola ad for corn's sake. So make sure <laughs> that when we're dealing with these things, we're informed that if people have passion, that it's also coupled, tested, and tempered by truth, and that if people are going to get uh, their, uh, I guess, uh, mistletoe put upside down, then make sure that you're not among that crowd. That's just being a bummer. Yeah. 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 Very good. You landed. Hey, yeah. Yep, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, on uh, the uh, the Twitter feed, Scott R4H at Twitter.com, we got a question that was sent along uh, right before airtime, and I I think oh. it's kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Um, the the questioner, and I'm not sure what their name is. I couldn't make it out from their handle, but they know who they are. Uh, you know said, who you are. Said that uh, cannibalism was mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. Does the Bible approve of cannibalism? Mm. What a question. I don't know what they are referring to. If they could get us chapter and verse. Well, I can give it to you. Okay. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 5. And verse 10, where it says, Therefore fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, oh, and sons boy. shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you, and any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Well, I guess the, the best way I can answer that question is, if you're looking for a thou shall not eat human flesh commandment, you're probably not going to find it, because it sort of went without saying. It was not something that you did. In Hebrew culture. Now, there were pagan cultures, Canaanite cultures, where it certainly happened, or Native American cultures we found where cannibalism uh, was often practiced, and not only in North America, Central, South America, and so on. It just it seems to be one of those things that the flesh gets into. Uh, but although we uh, do not see any commandment prohibiting it, the only time cannibalism is mentioned in the Bible is in incredibly dire sets of circumstances that inevitably were a manifestation 
of the judgment of God. Things have gotten that bad. Mm. It, it doesn't say, hey, try uh, that other white meat, you know, <laughs> out there. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. The Bible's not making a suggestion or a command. It's recording history as a consequence of their evil. And in the midst of the consequences of that evil, evil people continue to be evil. Yeah, and uh, even in uh, Ezekiel chapter 5 and verse 10, uh, this is not a commandment. It's a description. This, this is a description of what was going to happen as a result of Israel turning their back on God. God says, you want to make your way in this world without me? Uh, go ahead. Whether you like it or not, when you do, is going to be uh, another question. And in this you specific know. situation, why were they starving and resorting to human flesh as their meat because they were under siege conditions at the hands of Babylon. Right, right. Those in Jerusalem couldn't get food coming in or out. Siege warfare worked that way. It would basically uh, starve people to the point where they would give up. They'd open the gates and say, come on in, anything's better than this. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically what is being prophesied there was the future of Jerusalem. Remember, at the early part of Ezekiel, one of the things that was stock and trade for the false prophets in Jerusalem was, uh, okay, A, we're never going to follow the Babylonians. E Ezekiel was part of the one of the first deportations that Nebuchadnezzar did without destroying the city. Along with sort, Daniel. Sort of a shot over the bow saying, look, I can wipe you guys out anytime I want. I'm going to take your brightest and your best over to Babylon with me. Good luck. But if you cross me again, things are really going to get bad. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was true to his word. He, again, engaged in siege warfare against uh, Israel uh, in Judah. Uh, if you want to find out how bad that is, uh, read through the Book of Lamentations. It's Jeremiah's uh, up-close-and-personal description of how awful uh, those conditions were. But it was completely unnecessary. Uh, there's a fascinating interchange that takes place between Jeremiah and King Zedekiah, the last king of Judah where Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, look, this is what the Lord says. If you open the gates and let the Babylonians in, you're going to survive, you and your children with you. The city will not be burned. It will not be destroyed. Uh, it's going to go well with you. But Zedekiah goes, well, you know, there's already some people from Judah that have gone over to the Babylonians, and if they see me opening the gates, they're going to probably torture me and kill me. Or just make fun of him. And, uh, and, and treat me with disrespect. Mm -hmm. And he goes, look, God has said he's going to protect you if you do this. So Zedekiah said, okay, I can trust God or I can opt for human pride. Well, he opted for human pride. Mm -hmm. The gates never opened. Siege warfare took place. The walls were eventually breached. And Jerusalem and its temple were essentially raised to the ground. That's what Nehemiah had to come back and rebuild. The walls of Jerusalem themselves uh, were, were completely obliterated in all of this. Mm. But it took some time. And uh, again, siege warfare was a horrible thing because not only would you be starving to death, when people would die in the city, you couldn't take them out and bury them. As a result, uh, you know, infectious diseases and pandemics would start sweeping through the city. It was mm -hmm. just horrible. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, that's really what's being spoken of there. And, and I think it raises a kind of an interesting practical issue because there's a lot of people these days will say, that will say, well, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it specifically says that I can't go on a uh, YouTube porn site. So it must be okay. Because if Jesus didn't want me to go on a YouTube porn site, he would have said so. Well, <laughs> the Bible doesn't specifically delineate 
every single commandment that God says to stay away from. It does give us some really good principles as far as keeping us from falling into all of that. But, uh, you know, some people will say, well, you know, the Bible never speaks about this specifically, so I guess it means it's okay or it's approved of. Mm. Uh, You know, the Bible never really speaks about abortion, so I guess it's okay. Well, no, but the Bible does speak about the horrors of sacrificing infants to pagan idols. Mm. I think we kind of get an idea of how God feels about the whole procedure from all of that. So, you know, when people kind of play that, um, you know, shifting terms to justify whatever they're into, They'll say, well, the Bible never speaks specifically about this. Uh, I'm not suggesting the person who sent me the question on the internet was thinking about getting into cannibalism, but when they say, oh, well, you know, why doesn't the Bible speak about all evils? Well, if the Bible had to character, uh, categorize and catalog every evil that human beings do uh, and say, don't do that, the Bible would probably be about that high. And, and completely we, missed the point yeah. to which it was written. It's yeah. not a book meant to eliminate thinking, as Peter Martin oftentimes says in the show. It's meant to guide and inform thinking. If it told you everything you do and don't do, then it would be essentially the Quran, Hadith, and Sunnah. The Bible is meant to give you a descriptor of God's nature and how to have a relationship with him. We don't do that by finding what not to do. We find out what to do by getting to know Jesus more. Since he didn't model cannibalism, nor came from a culture that he established, by the way, that modeled or approved of cannibalism in ideal circumstances, and of course as well isn't the kind of being that, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, wasn't even a fan of uh, disrespecting the lives of human beings and considered them holy and made in his own image. They wouldn't reduce that to food. Yeah. So, very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for that question that came in on Twitter. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter at Scott R4H. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H, and follow along with him there throughout the week. Uh, we have a question from Glenn about the Word of Faith movement. Glenn uh, shared that he has a loved one that's at a church that's uh, part of the Word of Faith movement, and he's been trying to uh, encourage them to leave, but they say they've seen miracles happen. They've seen things, you know, God's a God of miracles, and they've experienced things happen. So what is the Word of Faith movement? What's that all about? And uh, is it biblical? Uh, The Word of Faith movement was pioneered uh, really uh, by uh, mind science thinking. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, thinking, grow rich, books along that line. Uh, uh, Christian science, which is really neither, were kind of the roots of this uh, sort of thing. And a couple of uh, evangelists, uh, by the name of Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagan, were the first driving uh, individuals that began to promote sort of the modern repackaging of of this doctrine. Mm. You know, it, it carries those same ideas: think and grow rich. You can create your own reality by changing your thinking, if you will. Mm. And they kind of Christianized it into saying, "There's great and precious promises in the Word of God. If you claim these promises and use the force of your faith." To activate those promises, you can ask God for anything you want. You write your own ticket with God. Concurrently, they will take passages uh, like, say, a a favorite one is Isaiah 53, 6. By his stripes, we are healed. And so what the word faith movement will say to you is uh, if you have faith in your faith and use your faith as a force to activate Isaiah 53, 6, you never have to be sick ever again. Despite the Apostle Paul being 
probably more righteous and virtuous than any of the word faith leaders combined, being regularly described in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 as being in shipwrecks and sicknesses and in persecutions often. It's almost as if a guy who has more faith in, in his little finger than all of these pastors combined isn't living by the same standards, so either he's deficient or they're lying. Yeah, and I guess what it comes down to is, what do we mean by faith? You know, Sean, you've got a great definition for that. Trust with reason, from the Greek word pistis that literally means that, and it's applied in the context of, notice, misplaced faith, blind faith, those are trust-formed based on reasons, but poor ones. Yeah. If you base your reasons for trusting God on the reasons he's demonstrated, primarily his death and resurrection, then you can take seriously his claim, as I live, you will live also, John 11. Yeah, and the, and the, where I guess uh, the word faith movement uh, gets into real problems is uh, it leads to presumption. Uh, word faith teachers will say you can write your own ticket with God. You can uh, believe God uh, for you know your own 747 jet, and they'll say, see, I've got my 747 jet, uh, you know, it's a miracle. It's a, it's it's a miracle. Or maybe it's not. Um, you know, the, the funny thing is, uh, they say you need to have faith in your faith and you need to make a seed faith offering. They will often say you need to sow your seed and, uh, you know, again, even put it on a credit card because God's going to honor that. And, uh, if you make a donation to our ministry on your credit card, then, uh, you're going to, uh, just prosper beyond your wildest dreams. Well, problem with that is that the people promoting it never seem to do it themselves. Uh, they seem to, uh, you know, say, you need to send me money. Well, okay, why aren't you believing God for your financial miracle? Why do you need me to send you money at this particular point? Oh, well, I'm just trying to get you in on this blessing. Well, you know, I think I'll uh, try to bless people a little closer to home. You know, the, the, the real dangerous part of all this, there's a good side of the word faith movement, believe it or not, and that is the people that are involved with it uh, that I've known really believe that God works in their life. They really expect God to answer their prayers. They really expect uh, the Lord to do uh, miraculous things in their life. And I think that's a, a wonderful attitude to have as you go through life. Uh, but the, the problem is when we start to tell God his business, we start to say, okay, God, I am claiming that, uh, you know, this uh, person over here is going to get healed. Well, how do I know that that's God's will in that situation? How do I know that God might be up to something else in that situation, like doing a work of patience within their life? I don't know. And, and so when I start telling God his business, rather than coming to him and saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, I I'm in deep water. One word faith teacher, uh, Freddie Price, once said that if you pray, uh, and then say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God will never answer your prayers mm. because you've killed your faith by saying that. It gives you an out to not believe God for what you've asked. And I guess it kind of comes back to uh, that definition that you shared, Sean, about faith with reason. Okay, faith in not what, but who. Mm. Um, you know, if our faith is in the Lord, and we know that the Lord is a giver of good and perfect gifts, and that the Lord has a greater and higher plan for our lives than we could ever understand, uh, and that uh, we can believe that just as the Lord lived in this world and experienced both the good, the blessings, and the tough stuff, uh, we're going to have the same experience. Mm -hmm. But we can believe that whatever happens to us, he is with us, 
Uh, he is never going to leave us or forsake us. He is always going to take care of us. When it's all said and done, we're going to say he has done all things well. Uh, that, to me, requires more faith than coming up with some kind of sanctified shopping list and mm-hmm. saying, okay, God, you got to give me this, and I'm going to hold my breath till I turn blue until you do. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other problem that I've run into with the faith movement, and uh, I speak from personal experience here, because uh, early on in my walk with God, uh, I uh, was uh, discipled by some people that were involved with the word faith movement. And uh, boy, you know, for a while, it really seemed to work for me. I like went two years without even having a sniffle claiming Isaiah 53, 6. Mm. And I thought, boy, you know, it really works for me. And I'd even tell people that in my testimony and, and all this. And then uh, one day I came down with this bug. Uh, I wasn't going to uh, make a negative confession and say I was sick. <laughs> Because you know, it's by his stripes I'm healed. I'm gonna, <laughs> just allergies. And, and uh, gosh, by third period in high school, I, I almost passed out. I went home. Uh, next day, it got worse. I was running this huge fever, made it through a class period, and fell apart. Uh, my parents were saying, you got to go to the doctor. you know. And I was like, no, no, that's a negative confession. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And finally, I had these sores that broke out on my fingertips and on uh, my uh, my feet and my my toes and they're like these oozing running staph infection like sores yikes and uh so finally my folks dragged me to the doctors and they ran every test on me you could imagine and they came back with uh, the classic doctor designation you've got a virus hmm. which is doctors speak for we have no idea what's wrong with you uh so it you know it it just was getting worse and uh you know i was naming and claiming and and all of this and this is where it got dangerous you know, I went to some of my friends in the word faith movement, and they said to me, well, we know God's promises are true, um, you right. know, and you're having this experience here that is contrary to the promises of God. Is there some unconfessed sin in your life mm. that's keeping you from the blessings of God? Well, my goodness, you know, searching your heart, it's confessing my sins. I was confessing sins that I'd never even thought of committing, but who knows, you know, and and it, it only got worse. And here's where the bear trap really snapped shut. Mm. When I'd gotten done confessing my sins and I'm still trying to name and claim, you know, one of them said, well, you know, have you really received the Lord as your Savior? Wow. Because, you know, when you're his child, he treats you like a king's kid. And mm. if this is happening to you, well, maybe you don't know the Lord at all. And, you know, at that moment, I was still in pain. I still had the oozing running sores. I was still running a fever. But you know what else uh, I had? I had doubt. Mm. It wasn't the faith movement. It was the doubt movement mm. at that point. Like, well, you know, maybe. And, and I knew that wasn't true. I knew, you know, the, the Holy Spirit was bearing witness with my spirit that I belonged to him. And, and uh, I remember getting enough strength together to go to class. And uh, I was on crutches. I didn't even put uh, pressure down on my feet. They hurt so bad. Uh, and you know, I was wearing gloves to cover up my oozing, running sores on my hands and all of this. And I sat down with a group of believers at a Bible study we, went, we had before class. And I just said, look, I, I don't know why this is happening. You know, and I've, I've prayed and I've asked God to heal and I've done all the claiming verses, but you know, it's just getting worried. Would you guys just pray for me? Just pray for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they got together and they, they prayed for me. And I just remember the guy who prayed for me just said, Lord, whatever's going on, just you know, whatever your will is in here, just may your will be done. And it was so funny. As soon as he prayed that prayer, I just felt like something like shocked almost my body. It was like, whoa. Hmm. 
Mm. And and it was all my fever just immediately broke. I felt like my strength had returned to me. Uh, you know, I looked at my hands and the it, like the oozing running sores were like healing up. Mm. I mean, I could almost watch it happen. Uh, two class periods later, uh, my hands were completely healed. My the swelling in my foot had gone down so much uh, that I, I I had to borrow some tennis shoes from a friend of of mine, mm. and I was completely and totally healed. Mm. Not because I was claiming the right verses. Not because you know I'd finally found the. It was just because. I think God taught me this lesson looking forward in my ministry future about not falling into cookie cutter, uh, nifty little sloganeering, too good to be true, uh, you know, you need to try this and you can live like me kind of things. Uh, he wanted me to trust him and his word in a deep and abiding way. Mm. And, uh, and, and so I feel for the people in the faith movement, uh, you know, I, I, I understand why it's attractive, especially if you're hurting and you're kind of desperate. And, uh, you know, some of the the miracles so-called that go on, our friend Adrian Van Vactor uh, is kind of skeptical about those, isn't he? And we should all be. When it comes to the nature and purpose of miracles, we should always keep it not only informed, but in line and in testing with Scripture, as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. For the sake of time, I won't give Nabil Qureshi's illustration, but the point being made is this. Just because you call something from God does not mean that it is from God. We test what is from God based on what also has been from God that starts and ends with his word and chopping up it up piecemeal like coleslaw isn't how you do that. When a miracle takes place, it's meant to affirm God's word to someone who either wouldn't know it otherwise or needs to know it with that much intervention and surety. If you demand of God that he conform to your way of thinking or uh, entertain you, basically, you're going to be surprised. That's not the way he does things. Yeah. Thank you so much. We're out of time for today, but uh, stick around online. In half an hour, we'll be going live with our regular service here and digging into more end time stuff in our service at Calvary. Matthew 24 from 30,000 feet. <laughs> nice. God bless you. Thank you for being part of the broadcast today. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.